0: When I made the last version of this video a couple years ago, god, I was back in high school back then, I had no idea how bad things would get over the next couple years. Since then, we've seen both political parties in America claim the election results are faulty, the Capitol was stormed by rebels, the major cities of the Pacific Northwest literally had rebellions, with violent riots spreading across the country, and the nation is more polarized than ever. This is a video to make an honest and brutal look at how another American Civil War would break out, who would win, what factors would set it up, and the like. We're here to tackle the $10 trillion question of if the world's hegemon will be consumed by the fires of its own division. There are a couple factors that historically determine who wins civil wars with almost ironclad certainty. I'm going to go through these here as a brief way to determine who would win in any possible coming conflict. The first factor, and by a truly massive factor that's impossible to overstate, is the military. In civil wars in which a nation has a professional, good quality military, the side that the army goes with will predict who will win the civil war with frightening accuracy. This is because the difference between trained and untrained soldiers in combat is so massive that if one side can train its soldiers, it cannot lose. The Russian and French revolutions only worked since the army refused to follow the orders to shoot the rebels and instead sided with the rebels. Alternately, look at the Spanish Civil War where the left-wing nationals controlled almost all of Spain, but then the North African-based fascist army was able to almost single-handedly win the Civil War against them from carving across the country. The U.S. military has historically always tilted right. There aren't good statistics for the last 10 years, but I see very little evidence that things would change. It hasn't been a completely massive tilt historically, but something to consider is that as the left grows more radical, it becomes more anti-military and against the values that hold the military together, like honor, discipline, and duty. Meanwhile, the right, as it becomes more radical, becomes more markedly militaristic and pro-military. Thus, in a process of radicalization as will almost certainly happen, we'd expect the army to fall into a more right-wing sphere. Officers, or those who'd provide leadership and make the decisions for what political side their units would choose, tilt significantly more conservative as well, more so than the rest of the military. Likewise, a significant percentage of the left-wingers in the military are ethnic minorities, who are divided between different military units and thus unable to reach critical mass to form their own military units. Likewise, ethnic minorities tend to side with the left since they're scared of the dominant culture, which tends to be encapsulated by the right, and often do the social agendas pushed by the left such as homosexuality, abortion, or transsexuality as abominations. The Biden administration has placed many left-wingers in high positions in the military, but I simply cannot see their officers following orders to support a leftist side in civil war. For the most part, the military would go right, with an exception being national guards of left-wing states like California or New York. However, even in this case, conservative states tend to have larger national guards than progressive ones. The second factor being control of resources, notably the necessary ones like food, energy, and the like. In short terms, if a side can control these, it can just shut off the power and food to starve out its opponents, destroying even the ability to stand up straight, let alone wage war. Here the right has a very strong advantage. When you strip away all factors, the political division in America is that between city and countryside, and the countryside produces literally everything the cities consume, whether food, oil, electricity, in many cases water and the like. Since all rural areas in America are conservative, it's incredibly easy to see them just surround and blockade cities, cutting them off from any resources. Even on a broader geographic level, the conservative states are a giant central block, while the blue states are on either side of the continent. The blue bubbles in between like Chicago, Minneapolis, New Mexico, or Colorado are surrounded in all sides by hundreds of miles of red territory that would almost certainly immediately consume them. I think this is probably one of the biggest factors, where the right is a single geographic entity encompassing the vast majority of the country, meanwhile the left controls various islands of territory, as well as territory on each coast, but even those long coastal strips are remarkably easy to divide, split up, and keep them from coordinating, so you have a central right-wing command in all likelihood, while the various left-wing ones would be split between a New York command, a Boston command, a Washington DC command, a San Francisco command, a Seattle command, that would make it incredibly difficult for the left to coordinate while the right could just surround and consume them. The third factor is culture, or what side can muster a tough group of fighting men who will fight fanatically for their cause. In the Russian Civil War, the Bolsheviks started out with something like 2% of the support of the population, but they were able to maintain the most internal unity among their coalition literally shooting any dissenters, thus resulting in the chaos that came with the fall of czarist society. John Haidt did a series of studies in his wonderful book The Righteous Mind about how almost all cultures follow six values in their ideologies, whether harm, liberty, fairness, purity, loyalty, or authority. The first three are dividing values, which basically split apart society to the benefit of the individual, and the latter three are unifying values, which weaken the individual for the group's benefit. Most societies in history are very high on unifying values and low in dividing, either since they were under the rule of cruel autocracies who crushed the individual, or their societies were obsessed with survival of the group with little value attached to the individual. This is the way societies in Africa and Asia often are, being very collectivist. The Western right tends to be pretty balanced between unifying and dividing values. Meanwhile, you see the Western left being extremely high in value harm, and to lesser degrees liberty and fairness. You'll hear right-wingers pull on values like honor, courage, loyalty to nation, and respect for authority that you just don't see left-wingers pull on. The bourgeois western left has a really poor track record of keeping together coalitions because they just don't have the values to glue together unity. The communists are an exception, but strangely enough, they'd be classified as social conservatives today. Communist countries were very patriarchal, banned abortion and homosexuality, and demanded their populations follow their inherited values while praising courage, discipline, and manliness. Meanwhile, the modern American left is incapable of holding a coalition or army together since they view any standards or hierarchies as oppressive. The idea of social justice warriors coordinating an army to wage war is so laughable, even left-wingers can make comedy skits about it. Just look at Chaz or the Seattle secessionist state that ran out of food within 16 hours of starting and within a day devolved into a dictatorship run by a SoundCloud rapper. Something else to consider is to look at how the left continually eats its own factions in radicalism while the right just does not. And you can see this today where the left does cancel culture, where it just continually eats the members who aren't pure enough of its own faction. And you see that across history where the left were continually split into Marxist, Leninists, Trotskyites anarchists who could not get along and would have civil wars amongst themselves, and you just do not see that in the right. You do not see right-wingers turn on their own people. Left-wing militaries of all sorts underperform militarily. Just compare how the Soviet Union went through ideological purges before World War I, with ideological infighting being the norm in the left and purging its own population. Meanwhile, fascist Japan or Germany did not purge their own populations, but instead turned their hatred at other groups and fought terrifyingly well, for nations their size. Across history, unless there's a significant technological or administrative difference, the rural side in a conflict will always beat the urban one. Connected to the first point, the right has a much more martial culture. I once heard a joke on a left-wing late-night TV show that one side in America brings guns into battle and the other brings replica katanas. One cannot be a hunter in the modern left. The modern left literally views masculinity and aggression as toxic and to be removed from society. For those that don't read history, Societies that martial warrior cultures lose and get conquered. When you get down to it, the sides that win wars are those that can convince young men to fight hardest for them. As the left gets more radical, it will alienate young men, and very much more so young men of good military fiber, who will go to the right. Young men are insecure and trying to find their way in the world, and so feminism's emphasis on toxic masculinity will breed a horrifying counter-reaction, about which I will make a future video. This YouTube channel's viewership is over 90% young men, and so tell me this. If you're picking what side you will fight and die for, will a speech about how we need to empower genderqueer people of color inspire you? Or would you prefer to hear one about how you will fight for honor and god and country? How you will be heroes and burn your enemies out of their holes, forward to glory for king until your last dying breath? Between military, resources, centralized geography, and culture, I think we've covered the really important variables. However, the left still has some advantages. The major centers of technology, culture, and capital are in left-wing hands. However, I largely think that these are non-factors. As Mao Zedong said, power comes from the barrel of a gun and the left-wingers can have Hollywood, the banks, and Apple, but if those people don't have the missiles or the electricity, they can't fight. I often hear people say that the left has some massive financial or technological advantage that would give them victory. The real technological difference in red and blue states is nil, and the economic and population size of both is the same. The left would be physically incapable of hiring mercenaries that would be able to match the U.S. military, and the top American mercenary companies would probably end up siding with the right anyway. Likewise, the division among young people was likely smaller than people would think, and as said before, the right would have a much stronger pull on the young demographic that matters for civil wars, aggressive young men. Writing the script, I just kept on being confused on how this could possibly be a civil war. When it comes to actual military punching ability, one side is so much more power than the other that it almost seems like a joke. How could we have gotten to the point where it looks like we're on the verge of a civil war between two sides that are so fundamentally mismatched? After giving it some thought, it actually makes sense from a very limited perspective of what makes our era of history special. I remember talking to one of my best friends, YouTuber JJ McCullough, about how the political compass isn't a great metric for looking at history, since basically everyone before the Industrial Revolution would be conservative authoritarian. This is since in the pre-industrial world, half of children died before age 15. It wasn't uncommon for one-third of nations to die in disease and war over a couple decades. War was omnipresent and a bunch of other things like that people cared about two things, that their group survived, and that they did. Societies maxed out the unifying social values since everyone had to work together so their culture wasn't enslaved and murdered. This is why heresy was so scary in the Middle Ages, or why the Romans or Russians made their soldiers serve for 25 years. However, with the mass wealth that came with the World Wars, it removed those various social pressures. In the wealthiest country in the world, America, it led to the conclusion that we'd be better off if we removed all the survival-based values and just chilled together, not judging, and everything would still work out. This is the hippie view, of baby boomers' race and comfort, who revert back to tribal norms, of hanging out in groups, smoking weed, not paying attention to time, as their basic norms are met. The American left doesn't view the world in survival terms since it hasn't had to, For people's collective memories, it matches the left's story of continual progress, greater freedom, and the right's story of the omnipresence of war, plague, and famine seems more foolish. Thus, the left simply does not have the values to wage war, organized groups, or the like. A left-winger would never write a report like this since they wouldn't view it in the same cold terms as me. Instead, talking about women, minorities, and young people feeling inspired to cast off oppressive structures at once. However, in the post scarcity, post World War II world, people still wanted to compete for status, and in a world of plenty, and in a fundamentally Christian society, that is shown through generosity and humility, which the modern left now does to the greatest degree possible. However, without the external pressures of survival, and with their view of history as a permanent arc of progress, Left-wingers don't have the intellectual ability to think critically about being crushed by the right in a conflict. This is why they push for various extremist measures, because the idea that they could just lose and die and the arc of history loses is just impossible for them. There was a time in my life in which I hung out in radical left-wing circles, because I lived in downtown Philadelphia, and a lot of my best friends and family members were radical left-wingers. And one of the things that always shocked me was that they would push for radical social change, or revolution, and I would just think you guys are playing the absolute worst game you could. Because if the left pulls a revolution now, the right just pulls out the army and pulls out the electricity and crushes them. And left wingers, because they only hang out in insulated social circles of people like them, they don't realize that. I think the country will just join to a massive revolution to join them. And left wingers don't seem to realize most Americans support what their agendas are. Most Americans support rights for gay people or black people or improved quality of life for the poor and all of that stuff. And as a right winger, most of the right wingers I know don't care that much about climate change per se. They care that any left wing acceptance of climate change immediately results in more state planning. And I just don't understand why left wingers don't play a softer hand to get their policies done. Since the left believes that progress is a continuous upwards trajectory, when they push for things, no matter how radical, they imagine they must succeed, even if real terms, they're just walking into a slaughter. Predicting details of the future is hard. I can say something bad will happen over the next few years, but it's difficult to specify beyond a certain range since chaos gets in the way. I'm going to combine looking at modern conditions with historical precedent to establish a sort of fantasy scenario that I can't even pretend to say will be the future but could be an option. The previous civil wars in English-speaking history have followed similar patterns and I will tease them out here to establish a scenario. Peter Turchin has shown how the same countries often follow similar patterns in political crises centuries apart. Let's start with the ruling faction which in every case has ended up being the losing winner and curiously are all on the anti-business side and try to use the government to push their agendas more aggressively whether the Royalists in the British Civil War, the British in the American Revolution, or the South in the American Civil War are in power. They push various unpopular political programs for their ideological agenda while struggling bitterly to balance between moderates and radicals inside their faction. Political tensions are high, but haven't burnt into flames yet. There were inflaming events beforehand that make both sides angry, but these haven't triggered war yet. This is similar to the modern Biden administration right now. This group either has its power challenged or pushes the other side in a way that makes it react violently. The equivalent would either be something like that the Republicans win the presidency or totally ban abortion, thus causing mass rebellions in left-wing dominated cities. A chaz, but 20 times the size. The other side, being the left, tries to do something like stack the Supreme Court, thus resulting in army units in Kentucky refusing to follow orders, which spreads like wildfire. The difference between this crisis and the ones before four is that there was a degree of military competition between the Royalists and parliamentarians, the American rebels and the British, or the Confederacy and the Union that's absent today. In each case, both sides had martial traditions, military men, ownership of resources, and large pieces of land. That's not the case today. If we have a civil war between the right the left the right will just win it's a matter of how long it takes and i see two different kinds of scenarios that could play out the first scenario is a slow burn in which say for whatever reason left-wing militias seize control over the inner cities and establish their own societies again for whatever reason whether lack of political will bad timing or a left-wing presidency the right does not crack down upon them we now see a conflict between the right and left-wing militias fought in gang violence in american cities as we see mass depopulation of the countryside. Meanwhile, the far right gets more influence over the army and in rural areas. America becomes slowly shittier in this world. The country becomes poorer and supply chains can't keep up. In the best case scenario and probably most likely, radical leftists gradually make a fool of themselves and lose all electoral power. After several years, a populist right-wing president ceases power and brings the nation to a new positive direction. This scenario is a lot to say for it, in my opinion, given that the U.S. is a lot less desperate than other similar eras of history, since no one will starve in America, and Americans be pretty moderate people politically, as the historical record shows as well. The more radical scenarios that the left goes more radical more quickly. The U.S. Army feels threatened and then launches what amounts to a coup, cleaning and killing left-wing cities. Restructuring societies to the left cannot have power again. This kind of scenario is more plausible than you might imagine given how America is becoming so politically radicalized that it's entirely possible blood will come. In some ways, it seems like the more likely option. Americans are becoming so unhinged, I don't know by what kinds of peaceful methods they could calm down. On top of this, there's a massive precedent for this sort of thing when unhinged urban leftists cause revolutions only to have the army immediately crush them. Look at France, Germany, Spain, Indonesia, Argentina, Hungary, Chile, and the like. The norm, which might be different given how strong America's institutions are, is that the army kills large numbers of the leftist elite and the rest go quiet. The nation then becomes a conservative military dictatorship for a decade on average before switching back to democracy. Something to consider is that the military is by far the most loved and respected institution in America at 80% support, compared to Congress, the universities, and the media, which are all at 20%. And that makes a military dictatorship more plausible than you could probably imagine. An important fact to consider is that the more developed a country is, the more likely it is to go to right-wing totalitarianism and the less to the left. The only countries that go communist are feudal pre-industrial peasant ones like China, Vietnam, or Russia. Meanwhile, when Germany, Japan, Spain, and the like went authoritarian, they went for fascism. Not a single Western Christian country has gone for left-wing authoritarianism. Likewise, in almost all civil wars, whether with the Bolsheviks, Jacobins, Puritans, or Radical Republicans, the most radical faction eats all the others due to its greater spirit of unity. There are a couple different models or theories that people use to predict history. I think a lot of them have validity, but really shouldn't be treated as religious truths and should be taken with a tremendous amount of common sense. For my years of studying on this topic, it seems plausible history has cycles, but none of them are clean repeats, since history has hundreds of cycles operating at the same time, smashing together, resulting in mass chaos and the adventure that we will have to live through in the future. However, there are a couple different ways that you could predict the U.S. having another civil war over the next few decades. The first is a generational perspective. The short explanation is that for reasons that are not entirely clear, the English-speaking world has some kind of massive external conflict or civil war every 80 years that spurs it. For short order, the last one was World War II. Before that, the U.S. Civil War, then the American Revolution. Before that, the English Civil War. Before that, the Spanish Armada. Then the Wars of the Roses, Hot Spurs Rebellion. And you could go back onward to the Anglo-Saxons. William Strauss and Neil Howe wrote a book about this in 1991 called generations that posited a theory of generations that says that certain kinds of generational archetypes play out over time. It goes something like the idealistic boomers birth the alienated materialistic Gen X, who in turn create the sheltered, and as Strauss and Neil mistakenly predicted, leaderly millennials, and it goes on after that. They trace us back to the Middle Ages, and the 1990s predicted America would have a massive political crisis on the scale of the American Revolution, Civil War, or World War II in the 2020s. The second model is the Turch and Hackett Fisher model, which my loyal fans are probably vomiting right now from having heard way too much before about in my previous videos. David Ackett Fisher in his brilliant book The Great Wave showed how societies go through periodic collapses every few centuries, driven by declines in wages caused by population growth and globalization. The most recent examples in the European world, depending on how you count were World War I or the French Revolution. Peter Turchin expanded upon this theory beautifully, creating a coherent theory of how they work, showing how they happen roughly every 250 years going back into the Bronze Age, and then making computer models which using his inputs were able to predict when historic crises like the Black Death, wars of religion, Russian revolutions, and the like, on the timescales they actually happened at. His models in 2010 predicted the US would have a horrifying crisis in the 2020s. The final model is that by Spengler, Carol, Quigley, Amory Duryakor, and Fabry. For reference, two of those authors are some of the most respected of the last century. If the Strauss house cycles take 80 years to play out and Church and Fisher take 250 years, then the Spengler-Amory ones take 2,500. For each of these theories, I'm having a text wall to explain their intricacies, but in their models, civilizations go through life cycles starting in spring and ending in winter, largely in which the civilization loses its vigor due to the world changing and declines in religiosity. However, all these authors say roughly the same thing. They say the West and its current philosophic evolution is in the same place as ancient Rome was in roughly 100 BC. Fabry and Amaury de Rignacour have wrote very powerful books that break this down on a really fascinating level. To simplify, like the late Roman Republic, we see a world largely dominated by a single superpower republic, with turbulent internal politics and declining belief in social institutions. Instead is the rise of extremely rich, strong men who lead the urbanized, atomized, and impoverished population with promises to fix everything. Religion has declined precipitously and the economy is centralized, resulting in most people working for some megacorporation. Local cultures have been smashed by the globalizing influence of the dominant one. The previously massive difference between political parties, the Optimares and Populares in Rome's case, have since been transcended by cults of personality. As you can probably tell, I want to talk about this all day, but this rabbit hole goes so much deeper, and thus I'll make some video in the near future about Is America the Next Rome, where I go into greater detail about this. As people, we swim in the ocean of the incentive structures created by the physical and ideological worlds around us. In the same way that those fish are mostly water that came from the sea around them, it's difficult for us to see how our environments created us and how we act. The Americans of today who want to destroy white men from curriculums are descendants of the men who fought in the beaches of Normandy within living memory. However, the way our society is set up incentivizes Americans to hate each other. In order to understand how America could have a civil war, we have to see the incentives of what pushes Americans to feel desperate enough to turn on their own people. The answer I'm going to give is that Americans today live poor and sad lives, which makes them feel the need to turn to violence for any hope of changing anything. This might sound strange from historic standards, where it's normal to see populations starve or in complete poverty, but pain is pain, and thus still painful, and the America of today has serious problems. As I've said more clearly in this video, normal Americans have seen their standards of living decline precipitously over the last 50 years, as wages have stayed the same while the cost of living has gone up. Just look at the Simpsons or stuff like John Hughes movies, where working-class characters have multiple children, own their homes, and go on vacation as norms in the 1980s, which is unimaginable today even for young upper-middle-class people. As I've described in these videos as well, the collapses in social communities and amounts of sex among Americans create a restless, angry, and crazy population. Humans are by nature sexual and social beings. Once you remove the ability to have children, which almost no young people can afford today, Enter relationships or have balanced social communities, societies lose their way and descend into barbarism and tribalism. These factors are most heavily concentrated among young men, which are the demographic you least want to piss off. In many ways, the fate of a country depends on how it treats its young men, who with their boundless testosterone and energy push forwards in any direction they can. An excess of young men must either push outwards as a team, or it start to kill itself. The reason most societies marry couples off at age 15 in arranged marriages is to make sure young men become sexually satisfied and stakeholders in society as fast as possible, at the cost of the society's creativity and social mobility. Due to how dating apps work, young men today are having less sex, they make less money than young women, they are told by feminism that their masculinity is toxic, and they are shown no options by society either towards manliness and honor or a place in society. I couldn't have invented better conditions for an angry population to make perfect army fodder. Also, unlike other countries, the U.S. does have a lot of young men, with the largest young population in any developed nation, and... The lowest average age in any developed nation. If young men are the top demographic for civil wars, the other is, as Churchin calls them, elite aspirants. These are the people like entrepreneurs, officers in the army, doctors, academics, and other categories of upper-middle-class or upper-class people who are trying to gain outsized power and influence in society. In an era of good wages, this social class is generally satisfied, thus creating low political stress. However, in our era of automation, globalization, immigration, and about five other things that push down wages, getting a college degree or even a PhD won't guarantee a good life. Even an Ivy League degree in most cases will lead to a life of soul-crushing corporate work. In all honesty, out of my personal experience, the only people who have good careers today are those who are self-employed like CEOs, freelancers, or influencers, since they aren't part of the problem of labor being so cheap today. People often ask me why social justice, a movement built around helping the downtrodden is so concentrated among the upper middle classes. And the answer is that it's built around frustrated elite aspirants who want to use social justice as a technique to get their social category, higher social status, in an age when that's incredibly difficult. I've spoken in these videos about how the political divide in today's America is largely that between the college-educated and the non-college-educated elite. All of the left's policies today, when you boil it down, as I explained in this text wall, exist to benefit the college-educated and to establish agendas that fit their worldview and self-interest. You can see this in how they're planning on forgiving student debt. The right, meanwhile, is an alliance of the non-college-educated groups like the army, businessmen, and religious interests, who also push those groups' interests. Both pick a group from lower down in the social hierarchy as their foot soldiers, and whose interests to push secondarily, whether ethnic or sexual minorities in the case of the left, or the white working classes in the case of the right. The left wants to put its people in power through every institution needing to have quotas of certain oppressed groups, as well as hiring oppression priests or equity employees as well as more government regulations. On the right side, it's from shutting off immigration, tariffs, less regulations, indirectly from having less women in the workforce. Both political sides have moved further to the extreme. This isn't social opportunities diminish inside these factions that are trying to seize power. There are internal struggles as people try to prove their purity and thus show their greater worth due to their loyalty. This process will continue as it already has. I'm extremely confident that the U.S. and the world in general will experience a giant financial crash over the next few years, which will in turn result in pushing the many already struggling young people into degrading poverty, thus resulting in them becoming perfect targets for rebellion and radicalism. As always, thanks so much for watching and have a wonderful day.